Syzygy, episode 38, Blue Twinkly Supergiants. Welcome back to another edition of the Syzygy podcast. This time we're talking about Blue Twinkly Supergiants, which, Emily, you're telling me has something to do with Game of Thrones. I've never watched the show. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit. There are Blue Twinkly Supergiants on Game of Thrones? Yeah, you don't really want to get too close to them, though. Really? No. Well, I, I'm imagining you probably don't want to get too close to the kind that we're going to talk about today. That's a very fair point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, what are we talking about? Look, there are stars, we know that, in the night sky, but not all stars are the same. We, we orbit a, a fairly average, reasonably small, I think, kind of yellowy star. And to us, that seems normal. But there are lots of other different kinds of stars, from really quite small to stupendously large. And today, we're going to be talking about a kind which is known as a blue supergiant. Now, I'm guessing, Emily, that you're about to tell me that a blue supergiant is called a blue supergiant because it's blue and it's really big. Yes, on okay. both cases, <laughs> that is exactly the case. Excellent. So astronomers not winning any prizes for creativity here. <laughs> well, you know, it, it kind of fits. What are you going to call a really big blue star? It's it's not just giant, super giant, and it's blue. Well, we already had giants by that point, I suspect. Yeah, so, so there's giants. No, there's super uber giants. So we're not just talking about this for the sheer joy of it. There's actually been some news on this. Um, there's been some research released that talk about how blue supergiant stars twinkle, how they wibble and wobble. So bring us into this one at some kind of reasonable pace, Emily. What's the research? Who are we talking about? What's happened? Well, you fired this research in my way. And I, I did. And I looked at it and I thought, ah, oh, this was a paper that I just came through my inbox as well because I really needed to read it because it comes from one of my uh, colleagues, actually, in astroseismology. That's right. I threw this one at Emily and she just went, hang on. Hang on. I know these people. I really need to pay attention to this one. So pressure's on for Emily today because she's got to get this one right. Otherwise, her colleagues are going to turn around and go, now, listen, sit down. We need to talk. If I get the physics wrong, then I'm going to be in a little bit of trouble. (laughs) That's all right. We never get anything wrong on this show except deliberately. So who is this research by? Where's this come out of? So this has come out of a fantastic astroseismic group in uh, Belgium. They work at KU Leuven. And uh, this particular paper was headed up by one of my colleagues called Dominic Bowman, who did his PhD here in the UK and has gone over there to do some postdoctoral research. So shout out to Dominic. And if you're listening, listen very carefully and let us know if and when Emily gets any of this wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So how do we find our way into this one? What are we talking about? Do we need to start with what is a blue supergiant? Yeah, let's go with that. Because maybe not many people have come across a blue supergiant in their day-to-day trip to the grocery store, right? No, probably not. Probably not. So what are we talking about? Well, I think one of the funnest ways to describe a blue supergiant is actually something that my um, astrophysics lecturers were telling me when I was an undergraduate. They're basically the rock stars of the universe. Okay. Rock stars in the sense of really long, bad hair and tight jeans or what? No, no. They live fast, die young and have beautiful corpses. Ah, there you go. Okay. Living fast and dying young, beautiful corpses with what? So they don't last very long. No. So let's talk about the sort of origins of what a blue supergiant star is. Okay. 
it's it's blue and it's very very big so if you think about sort of the main part of a star's life and I know that we've put down it's up on my whiteboard that we're going to talk about the full process of stellar evolution so all the different parts of a star's life that it goes through from birth up to its death we are going to talk about that at some point yes but just for now we're just going to talk about a little bit about blue supergiants and what they do so they are stars that are born at the extreme end of the scale when it comes to size and mass. Okay. So they are the biggest, baddest stars that we have out there. Really big. How really, like, really big. How big? So we're talking about hundreds of times the size of the sun. Wow, that is big. Yeah. Okay. So some. So if we uh, look at, let's, let's pick an example actually, because you might be able to imagine this. It's quite cool. Um, have you looked in Orion lately? Constellation? Uh, well, yes. Yeah. I mean, Orion's a pretty easy to spot constellation in the sky. Yep. yep. So Orion has two really nice stars, two of which are giants. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is Rigel and one of them is Betelgeuse. And where are they? Are they the belt or are they? They're the, the corners, if you like, okay. of Orion's tunic. So Rigel's the very, very blue giant and Betelgeuse is the very, very red one. We're not going to talk about Betelgeuse. We'll leave that one alone. But Rigel is a blue supergiant. And it's really, really nice having those two stars quite close to each other in the sky because you can actually see the colour difference between them. Rigel's one of the bluest stars in the night sky and Betelgeuse is one of the reddest. So you can actually, and you can tell that just from your own eyes, which is really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, when you you first glance, you sort of, you know, all the stars, surely they're all just, they're all just, you know, white, aren't they? But no, they're not. You look carefully and there are subtle differences in colour. And some of them, like, like those... Really are blue. Yeah. You know, yeah. you really can see that. Yeah. So Rigel is about 20 times the mass of our sun. Okay. It's something like 100,000 times brighter. Wow. Yeah. It's a fascinating, fascinating star. That's huge. Yeah. And 80 times, if you were to look at the size, like just measure the diameter of the star, 80 times bigger than That's okay. So that's a really big star. Really big star. And what big stars do differently to little stars is they burn through their fuel ultra quickly. Okay, and is that because with their you know enormous mass, you've got a huge gravitational force pulling everything down, it gets just that much hotter, which means the reactions are happening much faster. Is that the general idea? Exactly, yeah. Right. So even though they're born with much, much more mass, much more fuel to begin with, you think about stars as being atom-crushing machines. These big blue stars are atom-crushing machines going on steroids. They're super, super fast crushing through their... Uh, material. So they're churning through that fuel super quick. Is that also why they're blue? Because they're hotter. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the the average temperature that these stars are at is usually well somewhere between ten thousand to twenty thousand degrees on the surface. Compare that to our sun, which is a measly six thousand. Right. And this is this is the sort of thing that you can you can get a gauge for at home, right? The in a, in a, in a way because I mean we have a gas burner at home, right? And if I turn on the gas burner, then I get a a nice blue flame, which is a very, very hot flame, much, much hotter than the flame that I would get from a match that I might use to light the gas burner, which is a much sort of orangier, redder flame. So when you see a blue flame, you get to know fairly quickly that that's like really keep away from that one. That one's crazy, crazy hot. The bluer it is, the hotter it is in terms of in terms of fire and in terms of stars. Exactly. Right. Yep. Yep. So these stars, uh, they 
they they live fast. They they're burning through their fuel super super quickly. Many of them only last for a few million years, which is pretty short in terms of very stars. very short. Yeah. yeah. So we're thinking, uh, and again, in comparison, our sun will last about ten billion years. So much 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 longer, like orders of magnitude. Yeah. So very very big, very very bright, very very fast. They die young because they don't live very long. Yeah. And uh, they leave beautiful corpses. So what kind of beautiful corpse? So these are the stars that are going to go supernova. Right, right. Because there's so much stuff that, that when they go, they really go. They really, really go. Right. Yeah. So some of the biggest explosions in the galaxy come from uh, big supernova events like these. Okay, so a star the size of our sun, when it reaches finally the end of its lifetime, is it going to go supernova or is it no. too small? Right. We are too small. Right, too right. Small. You need to be bigger. How much bigger than the sun do you need? Somewhere around eight times the size of the sun. So pretty hefty. So by the time you get up to one of these blue supergiants, when they go, they're really going to go. So they live fast. They're burning through their fuel. They die young. They don't live very long because they're burning through. Even though they've got so much of it, they burn through it really quickly. And then they're gone within, what, millions of years. And they leave behind a beautiful corpse. They go supernova. And that's pretty extraordinary. That's biggest, one of the biggest explosions you can ever see. Yeah. Yeah. So these things are actually very, very rare. Right. It's very, very rare that you make very, very large stars. But two things which are very, very interesting, therefore, about them. First of all, we can actually see quite a lot of them in the night sky. Because they're so bright? Because they're so bright. Oh, right? Okay. So they outshine a lot of the very, very nearby stars that might be a lot dimmer. So even though they're very rare, they might be quite far away, they're so bright that we can see them at very, very large distances. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Even though there's not that many of them around, we see them much better. So they're, they're more obvious to it. Okay. And they're very, very important for the evolution of the galaxy and stellar evolution in general as well. Why? Why is that? Because these are big recycling machines, right? Mm -hmm. So stars take in chemical elements from the environment that they're born with. I mean, we started off with hydrogen and helium. And then they fuse things to higher and higher metals, right? Then when these stars explode, they eject that material back out into the interstellar medium, the kind of space between stars. It goes into a new star, uh, gas cloud, and then that collapses and forms the next generation of stars. That makes sense. So if these ones are, are, the, are the very stars that are doing the really big explosions, and they've got lots of material to begin with, then what you're saying is that they're spreading that stuff out around the galaxy. And that's actually influencing the way star formation actually happens within the galaxy generally. Yeah. These guys are spreading their stuff around. So a lot of the chemical elements that are in the sun, that are in the solar system, would have originally come from some of these very, very bright stars. Cool. Okay. And they're also very important because we need these supernovas to happen so that we can have collapse of other gas clouds and form new stars. Right. We talked about that what, a couple of, couple of podcasts ago, whenever it was, that the notion that you can have a gas cloud and it's, it's sort of forming, beginning to form the, the star at the center and there's a, there's a cloud around. But in order to actually get that to start, condensing down to form the stars and the planets and so on maybe it needs a bit of a bump a bit of a shock wave to go through it and well a, a nearby supernova would yeah. probably have yeah, enough we'll to do, do the that trick. Yeah, yeah 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 we wouldn't want one of these to go off too close to us no though. No. no yeah but there's there's no um very very close stars that we think are going to go supernova Good. we're okay for okay all right i don't need to worry about that yeah so super important for understanding the Evolution of stars, evolu understand the evolution of a whole galaxy uh, through the what we call chemical enrichment. So the slow um, enrichments, that means we're getting more and more of these heavier elements in the periodic table as time goes on. Cool. Okay. So that's blue supergiants. 
So why are they in the news? So these, well, these are very, very interesting stars, but they're very, very difficult to study, despite the fact that they're quite bright. And why is that? I mean, we can see them. <laughs> they're there. We can see them, yeah. But uh, when we talk about what the pulsations and the variability of these stars, it's always been very, very tricky to look at them. So these guys have got pulsations that happen on the surfaces that we can see. And many of those pulsations are on timescales that are really tricky to observe from the surface of the Earth. Okay, as in they're too long, they're too short? They're too long, generally. So um, if we think about, like, this is really kind of um, part of, it's a, they're kind of cousin stars to the stars that I study. Right. So if you think about the stars that I study, the Gamma Dwarf stars particularly, they have pulsations which are kind of a few hours to a few days. They're tricky um, enough. Some of these pulsations in these very, very big, o and what we call O and B stars, they can be last for several days, up to several weeks. Wow. Okay. Okay. So you've got to be observing them for long periods of time to be able to see those, those changes, see those pulsations, and be able to measure them across enough time to actually quantify them and figure out what's going on. Exactly. And that's really hard to do if you're losing a ground-based telescope because, first of all, you lose half of the time because it's daytime. Right. You're pointing in the wrong direction. Yeah. yeah well, the sun's out and well, yeah, wiping out everything else that you want to see. Um, and you also lose a lot of time because of weather as well, right? Mm. I mean, even the best observing sites in the world are not perfect. So if you want to observe something that's a few days, you're going to have to sit on this thing for quite a long time to pick up those kinds of variations. Yeah, even when you're lucky with the weather, it's still going to take a really long time. Yeah. Meanwhile, other people are tapping you on the shoulder going, are you done yet? Yeah. <laughs> Can we have some time on the telescope, please? Please. So they've always been really, really tricky. Um, and they're also, the, well, the amplitudes of these pulsations have been uh, quite small as well. So they're not talk, we're not talking about variations in brightness, which are, you know, huge that you can see with the naked eye. We're really talking about um, going down to 10 micromagnitudes. So that's 10 millionths of a magnitude and a magnitude, a one magnitude and change is a change of about two and a half times in brightness. So we're talking about a fraction of a percent of change in brightness. Exactly, yeah. Right. So these really, are really small. Really small. So okay. you need to have very good detectors to be able to detect those kind of uh, changes. But we have some space telescopes hey. that have been out there. To so it's really hard to do from the ground, but fortunately we're not just ground-based observers anymore. We've no. got things in space. Yeah, so, so this work is looking at data coming from two space telescopes, first one being Kepler, and particularly Kepler when it was used in what was known as K2 mission. So this was, you remember when uh, Kepler got a bit hobbled by its reaction wheels? Yes, yeah, it got a bit of a glitch. Yeah. And uh, and they had some difficulty pointing it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. so it lost uh, two of, well, three of its four eventually reaction wheels. Mm. And so it couldn't point at the Kepler field precisely anymore. Right. So we thought, okay, what can we do? We've got a sort of semi hamstrung space telescope. What can we do that's really, really useful for science? And that became the K2 mission. And so K2, we could point at different parts of the um, sky that wasn't just where Kepler was originally pointing and uh, look at different types of stars as well, which is very, very useful, um, especially for these hot stars because there weren't a huge number of these hot stars in the original Kepler field. So they were able to point at places and pick up more of these right. objects, basically. Right. So there's Kepler. And then, of course, we've got our very, very favourite Syzygy Space Telescope. Hmm. Which one would that be? Tess? Yeah, yeah. Tess. So this was, uh, they were also looking at data from sectors one to three, so the first three months of uh, TESS's observations as well. 
Because Tessa's mission was kind of twofold, wasn't it? And this is part of the reason why you were so excited. Is Chris? Is, is sorry. Tessa's still. Well, I mean, when they put the mission way. together, um, because it was looking for exoplanets, but also looking at variable stars. Of course, yeah, yeah. 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 So we, we love our variable stars with yeah. Tess, and they're doing fantastically. So there's a mixture of uh, Kepler data here and Tess data, and what was very interesting was we were able to look, for example, at very long-term trends and very very precise. Uh, observations that are you know un uninterrupted in the case of the test data we were taking an observation every two minutes for three months brilliant so that's exactly what you need to be able to see these long-term variations in the brightness very very small variations in the brightness of these really big stars yeah exactly and th that's where the interesting stuff starts to happen cool so we expected to see some pulsations in these stars and by pulsations in this case i mean coherent ones so this means you've got global changes on the surface of the star as it pulsates. Okay, so it's not just a little bit of a blip over here and a little bit of a bubble over there. These are coordinated pat patterns of variation. It's it's wibbling and wobbling in a coordinated way. Exactly, right. yeah. And the reason why I call these stars kind of the cousins to the ones that I study is because um, the mechanism's very, very similar. It just happens in a different type of star. So what's happening is that you've got energy transfer um, being uh, generated in the core of the star and that energy has got to come out it's got to get out of that star right it's got to get out somehow but um, with pulsations what's happening is the energy can't get out fast enough so you get a build-up inside the star itself now what's causing that blocking if you like um, we call it an opacity uh, because it's basically preventing something from going through. Like if you had a thick fog, you can't see light on the other side. Right. Uh, what's causing that is slightly different depending on the, exactly the type of star. In the case of these super hot stars, it's actually coming from the chemical abundances which are deep inside them, particularly iron. But behind that sort of area, you get energy buildup because it can't transfer through the star fast enough. And that heats up that region, pushes that surface of the star out a little bit. That cools, as it expands, it cools, just like any other gas does. And then once you've got to the point where you have expanded and cooled, then you get changes in the chemical structure, which means that everything can pass through, the energy passes through, and then the star contracts back down again. So you get these cycles of changes in the middle, energy buildup, which causes changes around that, which cycles backwards and forwards. It heats up, cools down, sends the energy out, and the whole thing repeats again. And yeah. so you get this, I mean, it almost sounds like it's kind of it's sort of ringing like a bell in a sense, that it's, that it's building up and going down, building up and going down. You get these, these, these pulsations. Yeah, it yeah. almost seems like a big breath of the mm. star happening. But it's uh, instead of being kind of the whole outer shell of the star getting bigger and smaller, then you're kind of getting... Um, these waves traveling around the surface, which mean that you have structured variations. So part of the star moves in, part of the star moves out. But the whole thing's coherent. It's happening across the whole star in the same way. Now, these are very interesting pulsations in their own right. Okay. Right? And we've known about them for a while, and we've been able to do some fantastic measurements, particularly in the, the cooler end of this range of stars. But what this uh, study was able to do is sort of start to look at the whole group of stars as a whole, first of all, take out those coherent pulsations and the few stars that had it, because not all of them did. I think there was about 100 and so stars in the study. Only a few of them had these coherent pulsations. So we took those out and thought, well, what is left? Is the star just not doing anything else over and above that? 
and it's it's not easy because you think okay we just take that out and see if any changes are left over but we have this wonderful thing in uh, in data science called noise mm-hmm. and noise is uh, basically the uncertainty the inherent variability that comes from the fact you're making a real measurement yeah the universe isn't smooth the universe mm. doesn't behave well typically and it's noisy yeah, it's yeah. very noisy. And photons, light, are basically have their own inherent noise. So we had to take that and, mm-hmm. and consider that as well. And then once you consider what the white noise that's going on in these observations, then you say, well, is there anything left now? Okay. And there was. And there was. And which there was, was. Which was what? So very low frequency variability. So low frequency means long periods, mm-hmm. right? So it's very, very slow changes that were happening in these stars. What's interesting is they're not coherent. Hmm. So you were talking before about the, the, the variations across the surface of the star being coherent. And that's, I'm assuming, because it's all coming from, you know, down in the center and the energy is finally making its way out to the surface. But because it's all coming from the center, the surface is going to react in, if not all at once, at least in a coordinated way in a coherent way so that's where that's coming from but what you're talking about is okay so we sift out for all of this noise and all this other stuff and what's left over is variation but it's not coherent yeah so our lovely term that we have for this is called stochastic photospheric variability okay now let's unpack that one stochastic means random random yep what was the next one? Photo- photospheric. Photospheric. So, so this is coming from the surface of the star where the photons basically come from, so the surface. Right, yep. And variability. Okay, so random surface shininess change. Yeah, Yep. twinkles. Yeah, that's another way of saying it. Yeah. Hang on. So what you're telling me is that this research, if I may paraphrase, this research has just shown that big blue stars twinkle. Yes. But it's not. Sorry, but you know, I don't. I don't mean to belittle the research in any way, shape, or form. Was that the title of the paper? It should have been. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Well, the yeah. interesting thing about the nursery rhyme is it's actually talking about a very different process, which That's, is the twinkling yeah. that we observe from stars based on uh, the fact that we have an atmosphere that sort of shifts around. That's yes. in the way. Yeah. So stars twinkle when we see them from Earth, not because of the star, because of the atmosphere. That's the, right. That the, the air between us and space is itself wibbling and wobbling, and that makes the stars twinkle. And if you actually get beyond, and that's one of the ways that you know you're in space, is that you get beyond the twinkliness and all the stars appear just as little dots. So what you're talking about is that the stars have their own inherent twinkle. Yes. Which yeah. is nice. So it's okay, really I take, really I take nice. back my, my sarcastic clap. Yeah. My apologies to everyone concerned. That's actually kind of cool. That's very nice, yeah. yeah. And what's interesting is this is the first time that we've been able to really strongly confirm that these twinkles are happening, and it's a really interesting piece of physics that we can pull out of that as well. Okay. So we've got the pulsations happening in, these, some, in some of these stars, but some of them are not at all. Uh, but there's another mechanism that we think is responsible for the twinkling part. All right. And these are internal gravity waves in stars. Now, gravity waves, this is the one, I always get this terminology wrong gravitational waves are the ones that we've talked about on a few occasions where you know black holes collide and send off wobbles through the space time according to einstein's theory of general relativity that's gravitational waves gravity waves are waves within something like a star or a planet the earth has gravity waves where you've got 
sort of almost a, acoustic shock waves, like sound waves traveling around is that is that right is that the yeah, kind of thing yeah so well i think there's a few examples that we can use so gravity waves are kind of much more mundane than the fancy gravitational yeah. waves that yeah, we, yeah. we've spoken about so um i i have i bought a salad for lunch today i'm intrigued to see where this is going <laughs> so i bought a dressing to go along mm-hmm. with my salad and uh, in a dressing i've got the oil and i've got vinegar as well yep so those two layers separate out because they're different densities now if i shake my container which has got the oil and the vinegar then you actually set up gravity waves between the two surfaces or the two liquids because they're different densities. Okay, so the gravity waves are at what you mean, at that boundary layer? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, so if you can see the oil, you can see the vinegar. If you wiggle it around, you can see gravity waves traveling between the two layers. Okay, okay. So that's the sort of thing that we're talking about when we're talking about gravity waves. So within a star, for example, uh, what you've got the core, you've got various layers coming out towards the outer surface. And so... These are waves between and around those layers? Yeah, That's they're, what all, they're all through the internal mechanisms of the star because right. you've got lots of different changes in densities um, throughout the, the star's structure, right? Because it's very, very dense in the core and then you've got different stratifications of layers as temperatures and pressures and so on move out from, from the interior to the exterior of the star. And you get the same thing in the Earth. You get gravity waves because you've got different layers. You've got the, the crust and you've got the mantle and you've got the core and so on. So you get the same sort of thing in the Earth when, for example, there's a you know a massive great earthquake or something like that it can send waves of all sorts of different kinds around bouncing and ricocheting off and going through the different layers of the of the earth as well so it's a similar sort of thing or a nice another example that's quite nice is if you see um a lovely clouds maybe at sunset where you see kind of these um wave-like structures you see kind of ridges parallel ridges of clouds yeah what would be a nice way to I'm, I can see the picture in my head. Yeah, yeah like striations of clouds, like like, yeah, like, like, like just rows, stripes. Yeah, stripes. Yeah, you see stripes. Don't you do, you? and that's and that's yeah. a that's a similar effect. Yeah, exactly. It's a gravity wave that's going through the atmosphere of the Earth. So lots of people study gravity waves in lots of areas of science. Cool. And now we've got them in these big blue stars. Excellent. So, why would you say this is a really really interesting and new finding? I don't know. First time it's been seen. I don't know. You tell me. Well, it's not just the astronomers who are going to get excited about this. Who else is going to? Well, at least not just astroseismologists. Okay. I mean, astroseismologists get excited every time we see waves and things. Sure, that's That's, your thing. That's our thing. Yeah. But we want to... So remember we talked about these blue stars being so important for stellar evolution. Yes. To understand the life cycles of stars. We think that using some of these kinds of results, we can actually start to um, using data determine points of stellar evolution much more precisely than we ever have been able to before. Okay, so what do you mean by that? So what we think is going what we might be able to detect from these kinds of observations is that let's say you've got two stars mm-hmm. that look exactly the same, two big blue stars. They've got very very similar brightness, very very similar mass. But one of those stars may have undergone a very very different process to arrive at the point where it currently is than the other. Very specifically for these big blue stars, they can go through these kind of loop phases where they sort of have a bit of an excited phase, they eject a whole lot of material, then they calm down again. And in those uh, loops, they're very, very important. They change the interior structure of the star. But from the surface, you just... You can't make a simple measurement to say how you know have you gone through this loop or not. Right. There's no. There's nothing. There's no record left behind of where it's at in in this process. No. Right. So, so you just see the two stars just look yeah. identical to okay. 
to the on the surfaces. But the pulsations and these, um, particularly these gravity waves and the other coherent pulsations, will be different because the structure of the star on the inside is different. So what you're saying is that you can tell from these sorts of pulsations, you can read into that. Well, the structure inside is going to look a bit like this then. If it's got these kinds of gravity waves, then the structure inside must look like this. And if the structure inside looks like this, then it must have had this kind of evolution. It must have gone through this sort of process to get there. Yeah, and this is really, really important because we don't know a lot about the evolutions of these kind of stars. Some of them go through some weird and wonderful phases like yellow hypergiant phases. They go through... Super giant's not big enough. Yeah, hypergiant? Yellow, yellow hypergiant. Some of them go through a red um, red giant, you know, red supergiant phases. Some of them don't. Um, for example, we thought, we used to think, that uh, every star needed to go through this red supergiant phase in order to go supernova, right? Turns out that wasn't the case. Oh. And we had a very, very clear example when we had supernova 1987A. Yeah, very famous, like in the, in the, in the, the list of supernovae in the, in the last while. That was a really big one because 1987, that's the year that we saw it, and we could observe that one really, really well. It's, it's the best modern-day yeah. supernova we've had because it was very, very close and we could monitor it very, very well. Now, we were able to go back in our records and say, well, okay, which star went supernova? It must have been a big red supergiant or something like that. Nope. Yeah, turns out, no, no. It was actually a blue star that went supernova. And no one saw that one coming. No. So it was very, very exciting that we were able to then say, well, okay, you don't have to be a red supergiant to go supernova. You can be blue and go and do so it. So I'm getting a sense then that this whole, and, you know, again, this is this is time certainly a topic for a whole other series of podcasts, probably the whole stellar evolution thing. There's so much here. But what I'm getting from this conversation is that we understand a lot about stellar evolution, but there's a lot we don't understand about stellar evolution. And in particular, this bit at the end where we kind of thought, yeah, if you're going to go supernova, then it's got to be this. Turns out, no, not so much. And there's a lot of interesting stuff about really big stars and what they do while they're really big stars. The different changes, the cycles they go through, the transitions they go on, they, they undergo, that we just don't yet understand. Mm. But if we understand how these blue stars, these blue supergiants twinkle and how those gravity waves are bouncing around inside, that tells us what's inside them and it tells us what's going on, how they're evolving. It gives us another way to figure that out. Yeah, so we can apply our wonderful astroseismic techniques of peering inside, very, very deep inside stars to figure out what's going on to even more stars and put together. So let's say we want to put a roadmap together of how every type of star in our galaxy is going to evolve and has evolved to the point of where it's at then what's wonderful about astroseismology is we're collecting more and more different types of stars at more and more different points of their evolution, opening them up, peering inside and seeing what's going on inside of them. So we're hoping to eventually almost have a complete sample of what stars are doing based on these wonderful pulsations and um, mechanisms that we see on the surface. So previously, a lot of that, as you say, the roadmap, a lot of that's been put together from observations of well, there are all these different kinds of stars and we have, you know, perhaps in some cases a loose understanding of how you get from one to the other, how you work your way through along this roadmap. Um, but a lot of it's been based around what we can see 
and trying to place that into into some kind of continuum. You know, let's let's just map this out. What have we got in the universe, in the galaxy? Um, now, thanks to astroseismology and things of that nature, we can, as you said, start to look inside the stars and really place them on that on that roadmap and figure out this is connected to that and that goes to there and this is how stars work this is how they evolve this is how a, you know the life cycle of a star this is what that looks like yeah and we've got data so we're data driven now which is amazing and we've got models and every time we get more data we improve the models a little bit and then the models models tell us what to look for and more terms of the data so it's a wonderful cyclic process and eventually we're going to have this enormous catalog of wonderfully well characterized stars that are going to tell us about the evolutionary history of not only a single type of star, but actually the whole evolutionary history of the galaxy because all of these stars are the contributors to that whole process. Well, that does us for another episode of the Syzygy podcast. Uh, Big blue stars twinkling. I think we've all learned something here today. I didn't know that that stars twinkling could be be so informative. I think that's cool. Well, I think we need to change the rhyme. I think we do. I think instead of twinkle, twinkle, little star. It's twinkle, twinkle, enormous, humongous blue star of death. Yes. (laughs) I think that's a much... Okay. Yep. I think we've got something there. That's good. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that in all sorts of ways. You can go to our website, syzygy.fm. As I mentioned, we are on the Twitters. We are at syzygypod on the Twitter. That's right. In fact, we're at syzygypod in most places. Uh, We've been trying to get our our, uh, our social media chops up a a couple of levels and so we're on the Instagram we're on uh, the Facebooks as well pretty much anything that you can think of we're out there as Syzygy Pod so if you yep. want to find us that's how you do that but otherwise we're going to have to pretty much wrap it up for this week so we'll be back again in a week or so until then we'll catch you next time see you later bye bye bye